Connecticut is moving back to the Big East. So as we head into our 41st year, this proud and history-making conference couldn't be more excited to announce that the University of Connecticut is coming back to its original home and will once again be a Big East school. Allen with Iverson on it, throws one up. To get yeah. back to the place I love. I'm coming home. I'm coming home. I'm coming home. It feels good to be home. Hello, Husky fans, and welcome to another episode of the Yukon Pod. This is Amon Kidwai. I'm joined, as always, by Dan Connolly and Dan Madigan. Thank you guys both for joining on this wondrous occasion. Yukon is right on the cusp of joining the Big East, and we could not be more excited, frankly, folks. Uh, do have some news items to cover, though, before we get into... Some reflections on our time and, and how we do feel about making this move. Um, and unfortunately, some of that news is not so positive. We kind of touched on this last week, but uh, the announcement came out that UConn would be uh, cutting four sports after the end of this upcoming academic year. Um, as of right now, of course, we still don't even know if what, what sports will look like uh, or if they'll happen at all. Uh, though everyone's trying their hardest to make that happen. Um, they ended up giving the axe to men's cross country, men's swimming and diving, men's tennis, and men's or women's rowing. So those are the four sports that are gone. Um, looks like some others may have been on the chopping block and were able to, to fundraise to prevent it, but... Uh, guys, how do we feel about um, the announcement and, and the information we got from uh, UConn about it? I thought UConn's Q&A that they added in the press release for this was really interesting because it honestly gave a lot of really good insight into their decision. And you mentioned the fundraising, but at least according to the school, 
depending on how much you want to believe them, the fundraising didn't actually make any difference in their cuts. At least from how I'm looking at it, it seems like the two main cuts for at least money-saving purposes were women's rowing, which has a lot of scholarships, very high cost with the boats and the travel, and doesn't really have a lot of success. And then also men's swimming and diving, which I think was kind of similar, not as pricey, but still kind of expensive to run. And then men's cross country and men's tennis seems like they were more Title IX casualties because I, if you have men's track and field, I don't know how much of a difference men's cross country costs because I imagine it's similar uniforms, it's the same coaches. At that point, it's really just travel and maybe some extra scholarships. And then men's tennis from uh, what I believe, I don't think they were even using the scholarships that they had. So I don't think the overhead costs were super high on that one either. But, I mean, it sucks anytime sports are cut because, obviously, it affects athletes. I think, like, two weeks ago, the men's tennis team just announced their incoming freshman class, too. So you've got kids that are already at UConn, already established at UConn with friends and housing plans and graduation plans that now either have to decide if they're going to stay at UConn or continue playing their collegiate sports. So... It sucks, but I think if there is a silver lining to it, I think the athletic department, David Benedict, did a really good job because the only sport that's outright eliminated is women's rowing, whereas there's still a women's swimming and diving team, there's still a women's cross-country team, and still a women's tennis team. So I think that is good because it saves some coaches, saves just the sport in general at the school. So it was necessary at some point, and I think, David Benedict and the athletic department pretty much did as good as they could have with the whole thing. Yeah, it's obviously sad to see that any sports were cut, but given the circumstances in the world that we're living in now, it's not surprising. Uh, there's roughly 120, I think it was 124 student athletes that are affected. And credit to UConn, they're going to honor those scholarships through the rest of this coming year, which I think is nice, especially for Dan, like you said, those incoming freshmen on you know the men's tennis team or uh, anyone that was coming in for, for cross country or rowing or something along those lines. So it is good that they did that. I totally understand why they did that. Uh, I know for cross country, a lot of schools and not UConn might not necessarily do this, but they kind of finagle the scholarship sometimes where scholarship can be double counted or, or not only counted once, depending on how it fits with uh, how things work within title nine to kind of make sure things fit. Um, not sure about the legality of that, but I do. I have heard of schools doing that in the past. So it'll be interesting. I think it could have been a lot worse. And one thing that I think is important to kind of make note of is that even though four sports were cut, UConn is still supporting more than the Big East average. So UConn supports 20 sports. The Big East average is 18. Prior to these cuts, there was 24. So even though there's four sports that are cut. It's probably something that should have happened a long time ago, um, just given where UConn's been in the midst of conference realignment and all that. So uh, my heart goes out to those athletes. It is a bummer, and you never want to see people's dreams, their all their hard work kind of come to an end at UConn anyways. But hopefully, given this timeline, all the plans that are in place, uh, things will be able to work out for everybody. Yeah, so they told us um... – and again, I, I agree, you know, UConn gave a lot of good info in that um, 
in their press release. So they were pretty honest about the number of student athletes affected. So 124 student athletes, uh, four coaches, and you know their respective staffs. <clears throat> they said they anticipate this will reduce costs by two million over the course uh, two million dollars over the course of three years. And they also gave us, I think, some good info on. Um, football, uh, you know, I think a lot of people, if they're not kind of in the everyday conversation around, uh, UConn athletics and what's going on with the budget, um, it might be really easy to say, well, they spend a ton of money on football, so why not, uh, bring it down to the F FCS level? And, and I'm sure it was probably something they were getting a ton of emails about if, if they were, um, you know, so forward to put enough to put it on the, um, in their, in their Q and a, but, um, I think they laid out the case really well. And I think through independent reporting that we've seen from, uh, Chris Benini at the athletic from Matt Brown, uh, friend of the blog, uh, and, and Dan, the article that, uh, Dan Madigan, the article that you wrote on the Yukon blog, like, Football was not the answer to figure, you know, to figuring out this problem, and um, it's it's really not even necessarily anything wrong that UConn did to make this happen. Pat Ford, um, it, it, it's something that is an outcome of UConn not getting selected for the Power Five in 2012 and 2013 when it was on the on the short list, uh, and. Um, UConn made a gamble hoping to make something happen and get that Power 5 invite. Um, and if they do, then they're supporting all these sports and, and this, you know, $2 million is not a big deal because they're making 40 from the, the conference television deal. So I think the other thing that we want to um, hammer through is that you really can't place this on David Benedict, previous athletic director, Ward Manuel, um, it'd be hard to find fault with anyone in UConn's leadership uh, for this specific move um, or blaming football or something as, as the reason. Yeah, Aman, you're, you're totally right. I think football is actually part of the solution more than it's part of the problem at this point in time. Anyways, there's still so many opportunities for UConn to make money through its TV deal, through the various buy games that it has. And, you know, some of the scheduling advantages it'll have from playing regional rivals, playing other schools with big fan bases, uh, et cetera. So it'll be interesting to see what the conversation is in five years or four years when this CBS sports deal is kind of coming to an end and kind of see how thing, things are going with the program. Could be a different story. But for right now, with the buy games that David Benedict has locked up, I don't quote me on this, but I believe there is at least one multi-million dollar buy game lined up for 2021 through 2025 or 26 and there might be some double dips in those years so that's a significant chunk of change that is hard to find anywhere else in college athletics and benedict has shown that he's pretty good at finding those routinely uh, for a hefty sum and you know doing it pretty easily so as long as they can keep that up and the football team continues to improve and there's still regional scheduling on top of that, there's a way that this program can be sustainable, not necessarily successful, but sustainable for as long as it needs to be in independence. 
Right, and I thought the point about the hidden costs, or not the hidden costs of um, UConn football, but just like the hidden places that it makes money because school mentioned cut football, the IMG deal for the radio games, that money is getting cut down. The Nike deal is getting cut down. So if UConn football is losing money, then it's easy to just look at it and say, well, if we cut it, then that burden is gone. But at the same time, the loss of total money coming in compared to what you're losing is probably greater than what UConn football is losing right now because obviously the school still thinks it's viable or at least UConn thinks there's a reasonable way that they can close that gap smaller in the future. So, yeah, I as I've said a bunch on the pod, they, UConn football doesn't need to be like an elite program. It just needs to not be the worst in the country. If it cannot be the worst in the country for like four years in a row... I think you'll see a pretty solid chunk of the fan base come back. Maybe not to the like peak years of 2006 to 2010, but I think it'll be in a much healthier and better place than it is now, at least. If we're not last place for four years in a row, I think we should hang a banner at the rent. But no, we should, we should just do what Dana O'Neill said and kick football to the curb and focus on getting men's and women's basketball into a premier conference like the Big East. If we could do something like that, that'd be a tremendous idea. So, yeah, this goes back to that point we were talking about just more broadly about the budget itself. The point of the athletic department is not to turn a profit. It's a marketing vehicle. So all those games on TV, the national exposure, that's the reason you run an athletic department. So even if you do have a bit of a loss, um, it's fine because the exposure and the excitement that you generate the way that it's a boon for applications and blah, blah, blah. That's the whole reason schools are in this. They're not turning a pure profit from, from these operations. So I think that's, that's part of the budget conversation that I think gets a little bit overlooked when people talk about that, you know, sure. Ma'am or sir from Boston college, we're so happy for you that your school makes $40 million. You don't see a cent of that money and you get zero happiness from your athletics. Uh, whereas here at UConn, we enjoy some happiness from our athletics teams. Uh, that's what matters. That's what spurs donations. That's what makes people want to go to UConn. And uh, it's not a huge deal to be losing money. Uh, the uh, other thing to just note, they, they are um, making some other cost-cutting measures within the athletic department. So uh, expecting travel costs to be cut down. Uh, I believe David Benedict is taking a salary reduction. Um, so they're doing a lot of other things as well to curb costs. I, you know, I think we all agree that the state of the student subsidy and the role that plays in the athletic budget is, is not great. But um, again, at the end of the day, it's a marketing vehicle for the school. They made a gamble to try to get into the power five. It didn't work out. Here we are, and things aren't things aren't so bad. I just that's the the final point I would like to hammer on that. And and as for football, you know, football deserves to exist. It had it has a fan base just because it had a little down run. Um, you know, the way you perform every year is not how you'll perform until the end of time. So football can absolutely be, like Connolly said, uh, if it's even 
500-ish for a little while, we will be happy to go to the rent, tailgate, catch some 17-10 games, and and enjoy our enjoy having a, a big-time football program, or you know at least a program in the highest league. FCS won't solve any of that. We'd still probably lose just as much, win or lose just as much, um, and just be making less money for doing it. Right, and also to go back on the budget thing, for some weird reason, UConn Athletics has to pay UConn the school for the scholarship. So a big chunk of that deficit isn't actually real money. It's just being shifted around from one part of UConn to the other. So like half of the $10 million budget cut of the subsidy is literally just UConn saying, okay, we're only going to pay the school as if these athletes are in state instead of out of state. So half of it, we're not even talking about real money. Yeah. The scholarship stuff is always a mess. So it's, there's never really a true value for that. So I think they're going to get a lot of it from there, but no, there's no reason that football shouldn't exist at the highest level. I think there's been enough success, not lately, but overall for, for it to justify that and whether it continues uh, to be viable, we'll see. But given the, the position, given where UConn is with everything right now, I don't, it makes more sense to, to keep it than to go through the loss of donors, you know, not upgrading facilities, all that junk to drop down to FCS. The thing that should be so clear to Pat Ford and Dana O'Neill is that UConn is taking control of its own destiny with this decision and with everything that it's been doing, rather than just sitting in the American Athletic Conference while things wither away and hoping something good happens. They've taken action into their own hands. They've done the most they can for the athletic department. So again, just this weird strain of conversation around like, organizational mismanagement led to this it's just it's so weird to see yeah the the AAC is not going to exist in like two (laughs) decades either so like there's that well conference usa has a proud tradition and history and i think uh (laughs) they absolutely will so um we do have some more positive uh news on the front of the baseball team uh connelly you want to let us know the good news that jim penders received uh this past week Sure. So uh, this week it was announced that Ben Kasparius is coming back to play at UConn. And if you're a big UConn baseball fan or even a casual fan and you have no idea who that is, that's because Ben Kasparius was a Connecticut star. He was the Connecticut Gatorade player of the year out of Westport Staples. And he went down to UNC to play, had a really good freshman year, didn't play much as a sophomore, and then transferred up here to UConn for this past season uh tried getting a waiver from the ncaa to play immediately and that got denied so he had to sit out this season he would have been uconn's ace this year he's a very very highly regarded target for mlb teams he's a at least in college he could be a uh, two-way player so he mainly be a pitcher but he can also hit so as the draft was coming around, obviously this year was different with the MLB draft because there's only five rounds as opposed, as opposed to 40. And anyone who didn't get drafted could only sign with a major league team for a maximum of $20,000. So there were some rumors that Kasparius was hearing that maybe some teams were going to draft him in the fourth and fifth round. That didn't materialize. So ultimately he decided that he's coming back for 
next season. He should undoubtedly be UConn's ace, especially because UConn's star pitcher this year, Nick Krauth, who had an ERA under one in the limited season, signed with the Texas Rangers. So that's a huge get for UConn because that's going to be not just their star pitcher, but he should also be one of the best bats in their lineup. So really, really big news for Jim Pender's squad next year. And it, it, if the season happens and if everything works out as it should, next year might be one of the most talented rosters Penders has had. That is awesome. And yeah, we're uh, speaking of MLB rosters, we are starting to see those uh, MLB rosters get finalized and some UConn names trickling in. Uh, we'll have the full list on the UConn blog dot com later this week but uh some teams have still yet to finalize but we're already seeing a handful of yukon names and uh you know with regard to casparius i mean there's a great tremendous lineage of of yukon aces uh finding their way into the into the majors and and doing awesome so uh hopefully he's he's next in line so up next women's basketball we've got a few just little pieces of information to catch up on i mean i think First and foremost, uh, Batuli Camera getting some honors at the ESPYs. Connolly, you want to tell us about those? Yeah, so Kamara is, since she's been at UConn, has been one of the most outspoken players. And just from all the athletes that I personally observed over my four years at UConn, has been as involved in things outside of their sport as anyone. I honestly can't think of another person who even comes close to her in terms of doing things away from her team. So she won the, um, or she was one of six people to win the SB for the Billie Jean King youth leadership award because Kamara is very active in, uh, young women and girl empowerment. So one of her main projects is this organization that she started in 2017 called Wake Women and Children Empowerment, which empowers young girls throughout the world with basketball. And one of her plans is starting an all-girls boarding school in Guinea where her family's heritage is, which lets girls play basketball, helps them get scholarships to come to the U.S., and also gives them professional development training. Other things she's done, she gave a TED Talk at UConn. She's releasing a children's book called A Basketball Game on Wake Street, which is basically just a bunch of different girls from different backgrounds just come together to play a fun basketball game. She's been very active as the Black Lives Matter protests have begun, speaking out. Uh, just There's so many things that she's done away from basketball that it's really hard to list them all, but one of the more poignant quotes that Gino Oriama had about her around senior day is he feels that few players are um, better embodiments of what they want people to get out of the program than Matuli because it's not all about basketball. They want to build these women up and set them up for success after college, whether that's in the NBA, WNBA or not. So obviously she's an, She's she's built everything that she has for herself, which is obviously very inspiring. And the award is very, very well deserved. And there's just few people that I've interviewed that are nicer and more generous with their time than her. Absolutely. Yeah. She um, has written a lot about her experience as a as a black woman, as a Muslim, uh, someone living in America. And I think it's just tremendous the way she's been able to use her platform. And she's written a lot of really great stuff. I recommend anybody 
follow her on social media and just kind of see what's coming out on a regular basis because she's really written a lot of you know illuminating stuff about what her time at UConn's been like and and you know working with other different constituency groups like you said Connolly she's really active uh, on social issues and I think tremendous to see her her efforts honored in that way uh, obviously she's not doing it for awards she's doing it for for very sincere reasons and uh, just exciting to see kind of where she'll go from here. Speaking of being active on social issues, we also found out that a couple of former Huskies have chosen to opt out for the 2020 WNBA season. The league will be playing uh, in Florida later this year. Um, Like every professional sports league, they're doing uh, as much work as they can to make sure that the show can go on. Uh, However, uh, the WNBA for a lot of different reasons. Um, you know, the math is a little bit different for the players and um, for, from the group of uh, former UConn players, Renee Montgomery and Tiffany Hayes are the ones who've announced that they are sitting out this season. Maya Moore uh, is continuing to, to not play basketball as well, but uh, Natasha cloud, not a former Husky, but just an example of someone else who has also uh, decided not to play this season. So um and, and for Renee Montgomery uh, and Tiffany Hayes as well, ostensibly the um, one of the drivers has been their interest in being more active on social issues. Of course, they also you know feel like they don't necessarily want to risk the conditions uh, of the pandemic and, and uncertainty around how, ba- how sports can operate. But um, I think it's big that that these players are choosing for a couple of different reasons adding up, but you know, one of them being a really uh, for a social cause, deciding not to play this season. It's really uh, an amazing act uh, to see from them. Yeah, absolutely. Because obviously Maya Moore stepping away is huge because she's one of the best women's basketball players of all time. But the thing I find pretty incredible about Renee Montgomery is she announced it. And then there was a press conference with her later in the day and someone asked her, so what do you plan to do that now that you're stepping away? And she was like, I have no idea. I just need to do it. And I need to do something. Cause she said, she just believes this is a special moment in history. Whereas Maya Moore knew that she wanted to work with, criminal justice reform, trying to secure the release of Jonathan Irons, a family friend who uh, they believe is wrongfully convicted for robbery. So just I just find it amazing that Renee Montgomery is taking, as she called it, a leap of faith and just diving into this and hoping that uh, she can make a difference and without even knowing what that difference is going to be right now. Yeah, I can't. You know, I, I agree, Dan. I think it's great for Renee to kind of take that step and try and do what she can to make the world a better place. And at the same time, I can't say I'm totally surprised that there's another UConn alumnus trying to do this, right? Um, between Maya, what Batuli's doing now, and what Renee's doing, seems like there's the people that come through the program are a certain type of person and player who, you know, obviously have a ton of success on the basketball court, but they're also they also realize that they're a part of something bigger than that and try and drive change for things they believe in so um, it's awesome i hope that there's a lot of positive things that continue to come out of this and uh, we'll we'll see next you know a year from now or maybe even longer uh what renee can do with her time off so seems like she's going to make the most of it and looking forward to see what happens 
Yeah, we we actually had Renee on the podcast uh, last summer. It seems like 25 years ago, but uh, she was obviously really nice, really generous with her time, and uh, really open and honest. You know, she's also thinking about what she's trying to do after basketball ends, and certainly, you know, whatever she does can also help her find that direction of what she wants to do in that respect as well. And I mean, yes, yeah, so many other former Huskies or even current Huskies making their voices heard and, and, and it's tremendous. I mean, Sue Bird wrote an article <laughs> for the Players Tribune, the president effing hates my girlfriend. I mean, that's that was pretty huge. Uh, Gabby Williams is someone who stands out as, as really uh, active on this. Um, Kia Nurse is doing so much to help grow women's basketball and girls basketball uh, back in Canada where she's from. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Brianna Stewart, um, you could you could really go on for a, a really long time. So, um, and, and Kristen Williams. Role, right, Kristen Williams. So currently on the team, yeah, Kristen Williams. So like there's, there's um, you're right. I think it is, it just does speak to the character of the people that Gino brings in and, and um, you know, Gino is also supportive of them in that, uh, which, which I think is important and important aspect of leadership on, on his end. So encouraging stuff to see and um, we'll be sure to keep tabs on, on what all of them are up to outside of basketball. And we should make sure we're, we're just as supportive of what they do on the court as, as what they do off of it, given all the joy that, that they have brought to us over the years. So with all the news out of the way, or at least the past week's news out of the way, we can start to look ahead and think about what the future may hold. And uh, in this particular moment, we are looking straight ahead to July 1st, the day UConn officially becomes a member of the Big East. Something we weren't really sure if we'd ever say or uh, what we would say if it was UConn making a move out of the AAC, but here we are, July 1st, 2020, and UConn is ending a seven-year partnership with the American Athletic Conference, formerly known as the Big East, and joining a new basketball league, also coincidentally named the Big East. Um, but obviously, we could not be more excited. Uh, we've, we've been... Uh, just trying to catch you guys all up with articles on the UConn blog about uh, different basketball teams, getting the perspective of different bloggers from within our blogosphere, something we're really excited to, to have. <clears throat> uh, no shade. Well, sh shade absolutely intended, actually. Um, so we're really excited to have uh, a lot of different people to talk to within the Big East uh, blogosphere and Twitter, Twitter sphere. Um, so, and we're also previewing kind of what the lay of the land is, uh, in, uh, women's basketball, uh, across soccer, baseball. So definitely be sure to check that out. Um, and we've learned a lot about, about this new league and we'll share some of that. But first I thought it would be interesting to maybe just try and go back in time and remind ourselves what, what things were like that moment, what we were all up to that moment that the news broke um, for, for us at the Yukon blog, obviously this is the biggest news in a decade, basically. Where, where were you guys met Dan Madigan? Where were you when the big East news broke? So I was at the travelers championship, maybe the second most Connecticut thing um, you could do other than talking about Yukon to the big East. 
And it was probably like, I don't know, mid morning or early afternoon, had maybe one or two beverages. And I'm walking around with a Yukon polo and somebody comes up to me, says, hey, Yukon, Big East, let's go. And, you know, I'm looking at him like he has five heads. Like I figure being a, a, a blogger and a podcaster that covers Yukon athletics, I would know that. UConn would be joining the Big East, but then I saw the tweet that, you know, what whatever his name was of Fan Talk Sports Sports News or whatever had the news that UConn was going to the Big East. Obviously, wasn't paying much attention to golf, scrolling through Twitter nonstop, trying to find some confirmations. And then I believe Mike Anthony from The Current kind of confirmed the news. Um, and then it was just like, holy cow. It was awesome because, you know, in being in, the Travelers Championship in Connecticut surrounded by hundreds of other UConn fans. And I'm wearing UConn gear. Other people are wearing UConn gear. We're fist pumping from miles away. I might, might've even high-fived a stranger, which is crazy to, to think about now. Um, absolutely, absolutely ludicrous. Um, I missed that. Um, but it was awesome. But uh, the bad thing was that us three are, you know, the, the three head honchos, I guess, for lack of a better term at the blog and all three of us were nowhere near a computer at, like you said, probably the, the biggest day in the history of the blog for at least the past five to 10 years. Conley, where were you? I was laying in bed at like 1030 and I think it was a Sunday morning, right? So I wake up and I have like five texts from some people that are saying like, is UConn actually joining the Big East? Like, is this news real? And I'm like, what on earth are they talking about? Like, so I immediately jump on Twitter, start scrolling through and same thing, Maddie. And I see some random dude has made this report. So I'm still laying in bed. I'm like, oh, well, I mean, like these type of things pop up somewhat frequently. Like, I don't think there's really a ton of weight to this. And then Mike Anthony's tweet comes in saying, yes, UConn is actually joining the Big East. And I'm laying in bed still when this comes through and just the thought that ran through my head was ah crap i really need to get out of bed don't i so i jump out of bed run out of my room go running to the living room grab my computer and i totally blacked out i actually don't remember anything after that i just started writing and hoping that the words were coherent which is generally the hope every time i put words to paper but the fun part about that was this is like 10 30 and um it's a summer weekend and like my family's coming over that's early for you (laughs) so well at like two o'clock i know i have family coming over and i know that it's not going to be easy for me to continue doing work once my family comes over so i'm working at a million miles an hour trying to do every possible thing that needs to get done. And again, I blacked out, so I don't remember what I actually did anymore, but yeah. So that was the most chaotic and insane morning of my life to the, like I didn't even process it probably until like a week later, just cause I was so busy doing things that I never actually had time to sit and think and be like, Holy crap, this is actually happening. But yeah, I think though me and Madigan's stories can't really compare to years of on. Yeah. So the, yeah, the reason uh, young Daniel unfortunately was running around and blacking out and blogging um, was that I was in England at the time. Um, <clears throat> I had 
been, uh, I was on my way. Well, uh, yeah, to, I was, um, it really was the timing of it was almost like a movie. I was uh, in transit, took my flight over, right? Transatlantic flight, get out of the airport, drive over, you know, maybe 30 minute ride from the airport to the hotel. I get, I, I have no idea what day it is. So I'm glad, you know, so I think someone said it happened on a Sunday. Is that right? I mean, it wasn't, you know, again, no idea what day it was. It was a weekend. Okay. We'll, we'll have For sure. We'll have to just cut that part. But anyway, <clears throat> so I fly over, car to the hotel, and pretty much as soon as I get to the hotel, I fall asleep and take a nap, right? Like jet lag, transit, travel, like you're, you're tired. Um, I'm in I'm in England because the Cricket World Cup is going on. So I'm going to be catching a few matches over the next couple of days. Um, but then as I wake up from my nap, literally like a, like it's a movie the, in, in terms of the timing, I as soon as I get up from the nap, I just check my phone and I see our Slack has just exploded because I don't even have my I'm in I'm in England, so I'm not getting any texts. Uh, and, and so I, you know, I'm not, I'm not rich enough to roam. Uh, and so I'm, I'm just, I just connected to the Wi-Fi, and uh, yes, at, at that moment was the Mike Anthony confirmation. So that's that's when I, um, the first thing that I saw. So I was like, okay, family, enjoy sightseeing in London. I'm gonna be um, hanging out here in the hotel today. Uh, blogging it up but the the other um the other component of that 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 made it complicated was that for some reason uh as as some of you guys know we um <clears throat> i also we also run the uh, the rivals site for for yukon and of course we wanted to to get a version of the news up there as well but um because of I think because of GDPR, I couldn't access the the back end of Rivals from from over there. So uh, Connolly was also pitching in on that front, but it was very chaotic. And then we did it. Uh, so Connolly, you don't remember the content, but we did an immediate reaction podcast. Um, I'm on my phone. I'm just like completely cracked out, and so are you, uh, frankly. But um, it was. Uh, it was definitely a moment, and then hey, we got we got great articles out about what this means for each sport, uh, which uh, we'll be sure to to share on the blog. But um, yeah, then it was just starting to realize, like, oh sweet, like conference tournament at MSG, that's back. Like going to all the stuff we've talked about, right? Like going to away games, relevant basketball. Oh, recruiting might pick up just starting to like process all that stuff. And I mean, again, MSG cannot emphasize enough the feeling of, you know, when I had that realization that the conference tournament would be at Madison square garden every year, probably for the rest of my life. Now that was such a wonderful feeling. That was really the thing that I needed. It felt good. <laughs> yeah, that was, it was total and utter chaos that no that it, it was just total and utter chaos there's no words that can describe what it was i'm fairly confident i worked a 40 hour work week that day and by the way the name of the outlet it's digital it was digital sports desk yep That's who could forget i'm so sorry for uh for getting that messed up 
messed um, up and they have 12,000 followers now. They probably had, they probably got 8,000 of those from the, just from the Yukon News alone, because I don't remember, I remember it being like a, I thought, of, you know, I just thought it was a fake account because every yeah. once in a while there was one, you know, there was something like that where it would go around that UConn was going to the Big yeah. East. The, the rumor had been flaring up. Yeah, it was like pretty much since the Big 12 flirtation, um, there had been rumors that like this Big East move was like the backup plan, which again, I think would have been valid. Like if yep. at that moment in the summer of 2017, I believe is when it was, Mm-hmm. Um, if, if at that moment, the big 12 decided to take like the two good AAC football programs, like, yeah, UConn better get the hell out of, of Dodge. So, I mean, it's, just, it wasn't crazy. I mean, of course we were always asking what, what would it mean for football, but increasingly it became clear that, uh, football doesn't gain as much from the conference and, and basketball was getting hurt, but, um, which, which are all things that, that we know and have internalized very closely now at this point but um the only other thing i think that compares just in terms of like the way the news hit and the way we had to just like activate on it is the bob diaco firing december 26th the morning after christmas <laughs> and it and it came out it didn't nobody broke it and it was just a yukon press release it was after, early too it was like yeah. a 9 a.m maybe, yeah. maybe 10 a.m release pretty early that was that was crazy. That was before my blogging days, but I was still involved, and it was uh, chaos, absolute chaos. Even the Etzel news was kind of weird too. <laughs> well, that's just that had you know we had to really exercise a lot of demons when that when that moment came out for a few reasons, <laughs> um, not the least of which being that we had Randy Etzel leading our. Um, absolutely will not be the next UConn head coach section of our coaching search coverage. But yeah, the, the, but yeah, so not, not since the big 12, I got, we got on a huge tangent, but not since the big 12 flirtation had the big East thing started coming up. And then ever since then it was coming up like more and more regularly, like the time in between the rumor flaring up was going down. And then this was another one, but yeah, like, like I think Madigan, you said, we were just kind of like, whatever, like these rumors are popping up. And uh, I definitely did not expect that to be the timing of it, but nope. here we are. And then to be able to make it reality in one year, again, David Benedict, we thank you. Thank you for making all of this lovely Big East possible. I genuinely don't think anything can ever top that. Like, I don't think there will ever be a moment in UConn history from now until the time the sun explodes that just something that huge drops out of the sky out of nowhere like obviously there were the reports but it wasn't like a whole lead up being like something's coming it was really just out of nowhere that yep UConn's going to the Big East and I just don't know for the entire school and athletic department what could ever possibly reach that same level probably when they go to the next conference (laughs) just realistically (laughs) but no I agree like there's just so many other factors to we'll get back to the American, I'm sure later on in the pod, but it just wasn't the best fit. Everyone loved the old big East. Old big East is never coming back, but getting to this new big East was the closest thing. And so between things, obviously looking almost immediately better for pretty much 
every UConn sport at the time, except football. Nobody knew it was going to happen, um, even though it worked out okay. Uh, and that extra factor of nostalgia, I, I think you're right, Dan. Like, it was just unbelievable. It, it was awesome. I was just not, I just remember being so excited for the rest of the, you know, that whole week, just being so fired up for uh, July 1st, 2020, and uh, going to be very different than I originally expected, but still awesome that UConn's in the Big East. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, to be fair, so even though the American Athletic Conference was certainly not our first choice of which conference to be a member of and and um, towards the end, certainly a very sour relationship, um, there still were some good times that, that are worthy of reflection upon. I mean, you still had couple of women's basketball titles the men won in 2014 field uh field hockey was not part of the american so we'll scratch that one but um baseball won this very competitive conference a couple of times what were some of your guys's highlights from this time in the aac for me it's got to be the conflict i don't know if i don't know where i would be without the conflict we you know, really leaned into it at the blog. And when I was at the Daily, we did the same. Um, and we can debate about it. The, but it was fun. It worked. It got people talking about UConn football. And it made a game against a random directional Florida school a lot more interesting, uh, even the blowouts. So I will always be grateful for the for the conflict uh i hope they find the trophy and it's something that's going to keep on going there's uconn ucf football games lined up for the next few years so glad to see that the only good part of the american conference is going to keep going yeah for me the fact I, I think the biggest sticking point for uconn fans was that the level of basketball was so 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 much lower than uh, we had in the Big East, and there was always the other AAC fans saying, oh, the basketball program is actually getting better, and it's improving, and soon it's going to be just as good as the Big East. And UConn can't even say anything because they haven't even been that good in the AAC. When up until, like what, last year, two years ago, UConn had more NCAA tournament wins in the AAC than the rest of the conference combined. And was also the only one to actually have any sort of success by winning the national championship. So UConn, for pretty much its entire time in the AAC, was terrible by its own standards, and yet still had way more success than the rest of the conference combined, which is just hilarious. Yeah, I just I just love when they talk when you know other AAC schools would talk about how UConn had no success, and then they just kind of like gloss over the the championship that UConn won in the first year. Like, no, 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 that doesn't count. Um, and it, you know, people might feel differently about it because the whole KO Calhoun's players, yada, yada, but it was still very much a championship that UConn won in the American. Um, but no, it's, I, this is going to sound weird and Dan, I'm sure you'll agree, but I'm going to miss playing Cincinnati. Um, that was, <laughs> that was a fun rivalry and uh, Xavier will have to do, I guess, but, uh, Cincinnati was one of the hold one of the only holdovers from the original Big East, you know, the end of the old Big East, and uh, it'll be a little different, but 
I think I'll get over it once we start playing Providence and Xavier and Marquette and St. John's and Nova and Georgetown again. Yeah, no, I could care less about never playing Cincinnati again, especially <laughs> now that Mick Cronin's not there. Like, let's yeah. be honest, Mick Cronin was pretty much like the point of that rivalry just because of how bitter he would get. And I wrote it down, but I, I think aside from the national championship uh, from 2014 on, easily the best AAC men's basketball moment was Jalen Adams buzzer beater yep. uh, against Cincinnati. And the fact that it came against Cincinnati was wonderful. And the fact that Mick Cronin still has meltdowns about it. Uh, it's just, it, it, it was just the perfect amalgamation of things to come together at one point. So that was pretty incredible, but like, yeah, I don't really care about playing Cincinnati anymore. It was fun watching their fans have a meltdown this past season when Jaron Cumberland missed four different buzzer beaters and then pump faked, didn't get the ball off in time. And then their entire fan base was crying for a foul after the buzzer sounded. That was fun because if you want to talk about irrational fan bases, that one is probably number one behind us UCF football. Probably so, as well. Uh, I, I was thinking more in the AAC. Oh yeah. Just, it's just hard to talk about irrational fan bases and not talk about Providence, but yeah, my bad, Dan. No, that's super fair. But like, I, I think there's like rivalry where like you kind of have fun back and forth with the other schools. Like we have with, Syracuse and we can laugh at Syracuse's pain because we know that UConn is the superior program, but Cincinnati was more just annoying more than anything and beating them wasn't like satisfying. It was more just something that like you felt you should be doing. And just in case anyone's forgotten, Cincinnati blew a 22 point lead in the NCAA tournament. That's important history that we should always remember. Um, and, and the other thing is in 2016, UConn won the conference tournament. So again, what the hell? And then won an NCAA tournament game, which 75% of the league can't say. So even in our downest down, UConn was doing fine. And by the way, if, if they do stay in that league with Dan Hurley, they end up just fine. I think that's the other like very important point, uh, that does deserve to be made and, uh, the Big East is just going to continue to help Hurley out, but he's already done a ton in in bringing UConn back um, and then got an added boost from uh, the Big East news. It would not be uh, a complete list of high points for, for UConn during this time without talking a little bit about some football because as we have brought up in the past, we should not forget that it was not that long ago that we were still somewhat excited about UConn football. This time, four years ago, we were excited for the fall. We were hoping, we were hoping UConn wouldn't do too well, and that Bob Diaco would end up getting hired away. That's uh, that was the tone of of the conversations uh, at that time. But real quick, I, I think it's fun that we got the chance to play Navy a couple of times. So home and away with them. That's always good. And then the win over Houston, that that brilliant 2015 season. I mean, win over ECU, you got – and then you're at Houston. I think they were ranked 12th in the country at the time. They're visiting Connecticut. Um, just an incredible moment where it was like, oh, my God, is the football program really going to do things? 
it did not turn out to be the case, but do you guys have other moments like that where you were like, oh, I'm feeling really good about this, but turns out not so much. The only other thing I can, that, that comes to mind for me is the 2016 men's basketball recruiting class, the top five of which only one ended up finishing. Yeah, I think the only one that really comes to mind wasn't really one sport related. I guess it was men's basketball, but um, when Wichita State joined, I think there was some real enthusiasm that that might make the basketball side of things suck less, at least for the men. Um, and it just never worked. I don't. They haven't won a tournament game yet. I don't think they've made a tournament yet since joining the American, and they've they've just been bad. So so that sucks. Um, the other thing was probably the five or six times that USF played the women's team in the conference tournament. And there would always be like that little, someone would be like, no, this is the year that USF is going to take them down. Like this is it. It's their third try, third crack at the Huskies. Like they're going to, you know, do some damage and then they'd lose by like 45. But I guess it's nice now that with UConn gone, USF has a chance to win some conference tournaments. So happy for the Bulls. Kitty Aloxa still wakes up in the middle of the night thinking about Kia Nurse. Oh, yeah. Loxa was really good. And Courtney Williams was really good, too. I, I forgot about how good they were. Yeah, they Not had some teams, but, but nobody could even come close to UConn. That was a you know, nope. the disrespect. The disrespect of, not, of having to trot out our, our wonderful team against those below, below, below average teams night in and night out was so disrespectful. Yeah, kind yeah, of a it, reverse fool's gold. I thought that random game where Tulane almost beat uh, beat the women's team on the road, I kind of thought it was like, wow, maybe the conference is starting to get to Geno. And like, they, like they're not going to lose that game, but they might get caught slipping and lose one at some point. And I, I was just so wrong. It was, it was really never in jeopardy. There was like only what, Dan, maybe – what five to ten single digit wins way lower that there was two lane and then i believe there are two more and both of them were this past season and one of them was like with five seconds left on a makarat followed the ucf player who was shooting a three and they shot three free throws to make it a 10 point game to a seven point game <laughs> that was awesome. one of them so i'm pretty sure there's that one another one and then i think there's one more in there but there might not okay. be so yeah so there were only two or three single digit games yeah but i mean also just that women's basketball finished undefeated that just needs to be said out loud again 139 and 0 just it, it's ridiculous it's really ridiculous that they didn't lose a game ever also they're not going to lose a game in the big east for like four or five years either but like at yeah. least it'll be more competitive doug bruno though with his Owen Bruno plays him twelve. Fifteen. DePaul's my, just gonna be the new my, USF. Yeah, that's been my trap game take for the last like <laughs> four years on the block. Like I'm always like Doug Bruno, they're always in the top twenty. It's always on the road this year. Game. Win trust. Yeah. It's didn't, always didn't, like right yeah. after or before Notre Dame, every single time. Didn't see yeah. Hall uh play them kind of close last year? Are they somewhat good? I don't think so. I think that was just one of those games where UConn didn't really show up for the beginning of it. And then, yeah, something weird happened. Wasn't, um, oh, I remember something. Crystal weird was out for that game, I think, right? Yeah. And wasn't Walker banged up too? 
I, I'm pretty sure that was the game that the announcers called Kyla Irwin and Molly Benton walk-ons, though. Nice. <laughs> lot to unpack there. <laughs> Which, to be fair, I think half the fan base thinks that too. So, Also, the final AAC game for UConn at Gamble against Houston, that was a pretty phenomenal game to be at. It's that was a great game. Just because of the way that Christian Vital's career had gone and just the way the last four years had gone, which they were terrible. Trust me. I was a student during those times. It was just such a great, like we're finally back moment against Houston. And just the celebration afterwards is, was just one of the best regular season games in recent memory. Yeah. And, and I think Dan, I agree. That was an awesome game. And given the way things have been after that it's kind of been like one of the highlights of 2020 but um another thing with the american i guess that i think we we kind of touched on is that the only team that really benefited out of this move to the american or the way the card shifted um was the baseball team and the baseball team really truly took advantage of that and you know used that to have unprecedented success uh parlayed that into getting enough donations to have a brand new stadium built that hopefully we'll be ready for, you know, we'll, we'll be able to see him play at in 2021. So um, just credit to Jim Penders for just continuing to, you know, turn water into wine in stores, Connecticut and crank out, you know, top level MLB players every year. Okay. So what about, what about low moments of the, or not, let's think about it a different way. What was the, your like least favorite thing about the AAC experience? A lot to choose from there, but maybe maybe keep it down to a couple. But uh, least favorite aspects of the AAC experience. Is this like a general thing or like one specific? Take, take it however you'd like. Okay, because the football game against Navy was top five, one of my least favorite nights ever. Because so I'm required to be at the game. because I would do buses like the student buses to the game. So I have to be there anyways. And it's on November 1st, a Friday night of Halloween weekend. So it's not a normal, like 12 o'clock kickoff. It is the only Friday night game the entire season. I'm in the press box and like, cause I have to run and do the buses after, like I'm not really doing a ton in the press box for that game. We have our football writer, Luke doing the recap and that sort of stuff. So my job is just live tweeting the game and that game was out of hand within five minutes. So there's just nothing going on the entire game. I'm like scrolling through Instagram and Snapchat, just seeing people at parties, having fun while I'm watching the worst football team in the country get slaughtered. Uh, I eventually turned on the hockey game. I think they were playing at like Merrimack that night. And then that thing ended like midway through the third quarter. So I just had a quarter and a half of just being absolutely miserable and angry that I have to be in East Hartford watching UConn lose by 40 the night every single person at UConn is going to some sort of Halloween party. Like that was just, that's the epitome of the AAC experience. Yeah, the Holy Cross football game was really bad. And that's not technically American related, but it was an American era just because I, I had drank enough of the Randy Etzel Kool-Aid <laughs> to just be, ex- <laughs> to be excited. <laughs> I had enough of the Randy that Etzel Kool-Aid. Insane to say today, but <laughs> it was real in the moment. We were, <laughs> we were hyped for fall 2017. Yeah. And 
and it was like, all right, you know, th- there's some real like David Pindell, this new quarterback is going to come in new, new head coach, new quarterback. And we're just going to roll past Holy cross and just, you know, have some good momentum kind of build off of what Diaco had going and, and just keep it rolling. See if there was, there was talk that like, it wasn't crazy to say that Randy Etzel could sneak into a bowl game in that first year. Like it was the best case scenario, but it was, it was not unheard of to say that. And they just laid the biggest egg I've ever seen for a football team to lay. And it was just the start of the, the Etzel era. And it's just, it's just been miserable ever since. Um, I also remember the end of the, I guess it was the end of the 2017 season, the end of Diaco season where they played Tulane and we we're basically just trying to see how many quarters in a row they could go. UConn could go without scoring a touchdown and I just remember, I don't remember anything about that game. I just remember Obi Melfanu was going for the tackles record. And I just remember watching him for the entire game, not paying attention to the scoreboard uh, or anything else. And just watching him counting his tackles, trying to see if he could break the record. So I had something to write about. Um, and it, it was just miserable. I also remember that game because I was in the student section for that one. And again doing buses so i have to be there to the end regardless so all the players are going off the field and i just remember bob diaco running up to a player who i'll keep nameless and he like taps the guy and like puts his arm around the guy and like says something to him and the dude just gives diaco the most like the most like dude get out of here i could care less what you say like just it, like he just had this incredible look of disrespect on his face. Like he just thought so low of Diaco. It, like that image was just burned in my brain from that moment on about Bob Diaco until the day they fired him. Another low, which wasn't football related, is all of the road games at Tulsa. <laughs> just it was a weird start. There was some something weird happened, or you kind of was autom- like just came out flat as always and was down like 15 to like a, ter- a, a absolutely atrocious Tulsa team. Uh, and it was, it was always just voodoo magic and it was never, they really never had a chance at winning until this season, which they finally did. I'm glad they exercised that demon, but it was the worst. Yeah. I remember there like three years ago, there was a double overtime loss at, at, uh, I, I, that never, one hurt. I never recovered from that to be, that was a low point in the yeah. conference. <clears throat> that there was a loss at East Carolina yep. in men's basketball. That also happened. Oh. Um, I mean, just, you know, those, those 2016 and 2017 seasons were just like losses were stacking up from an early stage. Mm-hmm. And we're just like, man, who's excited for this conference game against East Carolina. That, that was not good. Um, Real quick though, shout out to to Brian Sharefs and David Pindell for being two of the best quarterbacks, really to ever come through UConn. Um, just wanted to give them their, give them their due real quick, as honestly both of them for, for different reasons were some of my highlights of of UConn's time, uh, especially in football over the past agreed past few years. But that I mean that last stretch of the 2016 season, that was brutal. Cause they just, they had so clearly fallen off a cliff uh, since the starting with the Navy loss, but, and we've talked about this, but even at that Navy loss, you know, they're two and two, 
They start off three and three, including a win over UVA. Um, but they get absolutely smoked by East at East Carolina. I was at that game. And then the other tough one for me, also not an AAC game, but that year losing at Boston college 30 to nothing. Like, you know, we hate Boston college. We, we want to think that we're, you know, deserving to be in their, in their echelon. And uh, Bob Diaco basically decided to have his absolute low point and they lost 30 to nothing in a game that Bob Diaco said was close at halftime. So <laughs> that, that stretch was, um, was absolutely brutal. And that was an opportunity, you know, like you thought, Oh, 2015, they're having a good season. Maybe they could beat BC. Um, but they did not come even close. And there's also in that BC game, not, directly but the donovan williams decision playing a dude who just like no disrespect to donovan williams but had absolutely no business being a quarterback on an fbs football team at that point in his career like it was just and burning his red shirt to do it oh my it was just the most horrible thing and but yeah just one of the all-time great yukon what ifs is what if Bob Diaco throws the ball and UConn beats Navy, like who knows what happens? Cause the like real time that fell apart was the USF game um, or UCF game a few weeks later. Cause I think they had a lead in the second half of that game and then just like totally fell apart after that. And that just the decline hit immediately after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another one, and this is a this was a UConn football win, so it's crazy to say that it was a low point. But I think you guys probably know what I'm talking about. But the the Tulane game, yeah, yep. on the road, it's <laughs> no offensive touchdowns, just a Jamar Summers scoop and score. I think it was like a pick six. It was a pick six. Oh, it was a pick six. It's just a wicked long return for the touchdown. It's the only sense of action in that game. It was a driving rainstorm. Nothing happened. And it, it was just like, I remember being excited that UConn won the game, but it didn't feel like any team, either team accomplished anything. Like the game happened, but nothing really came out of it. It was, it was bad. And that was a win. <laughs> As usual, these stories need no exaggeration. They're just the tales of life in the American Athletic Conference. Uh, but luckily we get to put them in the past. So, uh, that's the good part. And uh, yeah, so just to, to kind of wrap things up here on, on the pod, we've uh, we've all been writing up a lot about uh, the Big East and different teams and leagues and, and whatnot and, and competitors. Um, what is some of the most interesting stuff you guys have learned since uh, starting to review kind of the, the lay of the land and, and what other teams and players have going on? I, I think just for it's not necessarily directly related to a specific Big East school, but I'm excited to check out some of the new um, arenas for, for men's basketball. If we're ever allowed to go see games, uh, DePaul just has a new Wintrust center in uh, or Wintrust arena in Chicago it's supposed to be really, really nice. Butler has historic Hinkle field house in Indiana, Indianapolis. So uh, really excited to check those out. If we get the opportunity uh, I went to a UConn Nova game at Wells Fargo in Philadelphia, and it was awesome. Like one of the best college basketball experiences I've ever had. 
So I'm definitely going to try and do that again. And then, of course, the return to the Mecca, right? Like watching the Big East tournament at Madison Square Garden is one of the best things in the world. So it's going to be nice to do that and have some skin in the game for the first time in, in seven years. So um, definitely trying to make the most of that. That was <laughs> one of my big 2020 uh, things was, you know, 2020 and beyond was to try and travel more and <laughs> follow UConn around. And uh, that's obviously never going to happen. But um, at some point, hoping to make it out to some of the great arenas that this conference has to offer and and check it out and follow the Huskies. Yeah, mine's in a completely different vein. And it's uh, in the women's soccer uh, side of things. So Butler women's soccer has, I think, the most unique coaching setup in college sports. I don't think that's an over-exaggeration of things at all. Any level, any sport, anywhere. So they have co-head coaches, which isn't a completely unfounded idea. If Margaret Rodriguez didn't get the head coaching job at UConn, she was going to be a co-head coach with her sister at Fairfield. But what makes this situation unique is that the co-head coaches of Butler are married. It is a wife and her husband are the co-head coaches. What makes this so bizarre is that Terry St. John has been the head coach at Butler for the last 14 years. So she's been doing this for a while. Her co-head coach slash husband, Rob Alman, he only joined her in 2012 after they got married. So she was doing things on her own for a while. And then she got married and, decided to have her husband join her as a co-head coach. I I have so many questions that I really, when Butler comes <laughs> to UConn, I would just love a sit down with both of them for about five hours just to get through all of them because it's, I, I've never heard of anything like that. There's just so much going on. That is certainly one of the most unusual things I have ever heard of in college sports is a, husband, wife, co-head coach combo. Uh, so congrats to Butler for, for really raising the bar on what's possible. And that's going to do it for us. Thank you all for listening.